Welcome to the Men in Lead podcast. What is up, you guys? I have Dr. Doug Lucas on the show. He was originally an orthopedic surgeon, and then after years of doing it, he realized that his patients are not necessarily getting better, and then he turned to more a natural, holistic approach. He started Optimal Human Health as a platform to provide telehealth testing and optimization programs. He is the founder of his telehealth practice, Optimal Human Health, where he and his team helps patients optimize by reviewing genetics, extensive lab work, and functional testing. His whole program is about six months, and it focuses on lifestyle changes, customized supplementation protocols, hormone optimization and replacement, peptide protocols, medications, and whatever is needed for that specific individual. This podcast, we talked mostly about testosterone and thyroid optimization. So please enjoy this conversation. I hope you find the gems out of this episode. Dr. Doug, you were or are still a surgeon but you started to focus more on alternative things and realized that medicine was perhaps not the best way to help people out. So could you just give us a quick background on your journey here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So like you said, my background is in orthopedics. Um, So I was trained as an orthopedic surgeon, went through that traditional pathway of, you know, medical school, residency, fellowship, Um, you know, spent a decade doing it. And when I got into practice, felt like I was really just cleaning up the tail end of disease. My wife at the same time had developed a nutrition uh, program and was really focused on weight loss. And she was really changing people's lives through nutrition and lifestyle education um, and behavior education. And so I had a lot of that same interest and passion, but when I tried to impart that to my patients, in my traditional medical orthopedic office, it, it mostly fell on deaf ears. And it's because it's just not why they were there. Um, and so ultimately, I ended up uh, getting some additional training and opening the practice that I have now, uh, which is kind of in the functional medicine, uh, precision health space where I help to optimize people and, and make the changes that I like to actually help people make. So two um, areas that you specialize in that I want to ask you mostly about is this hormone optimization, specifically testosterone and thyroid. Um, So I want to start with testosterone. Uh, I have a bunch of questions. Hopefully we will be able to get through all of those. Um, So when your clients come to you and they have low testosterone symptoms, what is their kind of awareness? Do, um, Do When they come to you, do they only tell you their symptoms or do they know they have low testosterone? Uh, a little bit of both. Um, it's pretty variable because the testosterone is not frequently tested in our traditional system. Most men don't come to me with tests in hand. Um, so the majority of people we're finding out for the first time when we get this, you know, we get this pretty elaborate, extensive blood panel uh, that has a lot of stuff in it, but it definitely includes testosterone and a full look at it. Um, and so I, I see low testosterone in men from, you know, they're honestly in their 20s and all, all the way through the age spectrum. Um, and so they generally don't know they have it and are surprised, but sometimes happily surprised because it helps explain some of their symptoms. All right, so who should be on testosterone then? Mm-hmm. Great question. So I think it really comes down to symptoms um, and a little bit of age. And, and the reason why I say age is because of the, the potential side effects of going on testosterone. So taking testosterone and what it does to the body. So I think um, 
to back that up a little bit, the, the symptoms that I am mostly worried about from a testosterone perspective, people that have low T, you know, we hear about, well, I've lost my libido or, you know, my erectile function isn't as good. Um, but the things I hear more frequently are actually things like loss of energy, uh, loss of, you know, vitality or that competitive edge, uh, just can't quite make it through the day, don't have that stamina. Um, the brain fog, I just can't quite think the way that I used to. Like I look at all of those things, actually both thyroid, but also potentially as low testosterone. And when you fix those things, then everything else gets better. So I think if somebody has those things and they have low testosterone and we've addressed all the lifestyle stuff that can really help testosterone, and, and I'm happy to talk about that. But once we've addressed all those things and there's, it's still low, then I think it should be considered as long as they a, don't want to have children uh, because taking testosterone will make that very, very difficult um, and sometimes hard to reverse. Um, and B, are comfortable knowing that they're probably going to have to take it indefinitely. It's really hard to get off of. It's possible, um, but your function probably won't be as good as, as when you started, although when you started, it wasn't good to begin with. So uh, then there's also the question, like the risks and benefits and all those things that you have to talk about. But but yeah, those are the people that I would recommend be on it. When the people come to you, are they more prone to actually, are they open to doing it the natural way compared to just, you know, injecting? A little bit of both. I mean, I think, you know, some people, they when I say like, well, if we clean up your sleep and we, and we do this with your diet and we start, you know, focusing on stress mitigation with mindfulness and journaling, they kind of look at me like, hey, dude, that's not going to work. Um, but the reality is, is that it does work. I mean, I've, I've seen testosterone levels go from, you know, 300 or below to almost a thousand purely through lifestyle and supplementation, uh, but not replacement. And so it, and they really, it really can be powerful, but it has to be consistent. Um, and so that's where sometimes people can't make those lifestyle changes without actually going on replacement. And so there's a little bit of a back and forth there where you got to give them something to help them to do the things that they need to do to improve their lifestyle. So, so it's a, it's a back and forth conversation and some people are interested in the lifestyle and are concerned about going on replacement, but other people, they're just like, dude, I just want to start. Like, let's just do this thing. Yeah. So you mentioned there are some side effects to being on testosterone. Can you elaborate on that specifically? Yeah, absolutely. So the biggest you know, side effect, meaning that something that happens when you take the, the drug, the biggest side effect that can occur in a, a small minority of people is that their blood levels go up. So meaning that when you get a, a blood test, you'll find that you have extra red blood cells in your blood. Um, how dangerous that is, is actually pretty questionable in the literature. And some people would say it puts you at risk for blood clot. Other people say it doesn't. Um, I'm not here to tell you one way or the other. The recommendation for those people if that happens is to either stop testosterone or just give blood on a regular basis if you're comfortable doing that. Um, and I think uh, both of those are reasonable, but giving blood is uh, both life-saving um, and a reasonably good thing to do as long as you're comfortable doing that. So um, so I don't think it's necessarily a, a, a bad side effect, but it is something that will catch people by surprise and a reason why you need to actually repeat your blood levels and get tested. Um, the other things that go along with it that are frequently talked about, one would be the risk of prostate cancer. Um, and the literature behind that is, is um, it's interesting. And I say that because there, the, the big studies that show that there's an increased risk of prostate cancer with testosterone use are, are not well done studies. They're retrospective in design, meaning that they can't, 
they can't demonstrate causal relationship. They can only show that there is an association and the associations are weak at best. And if you look at prospective studies, meaning people that are on testosterone as an intervention that have looked at things like prostate cancer, that risk doesn't seem to be uh, consistent in those other studies. So people will say it has the increased risk of prostate cancer. I don't think that's true. What is true is that you ha if you have prostate cancer when you start, it may grow faster. So that's another reason you just got to keep getting tested and keep getting your annual exams and doing all that stuff, uh, which you should do anyway. Um, the last one is the increased risk of heart attack uh, or plaque development in the heart. Again, this is another one I think is really, uh, it's been, um, it's come out of poorly designed studies and it, the risk is probably not real, although I can't say that with 100% certainty, but I'm comfortable enough saying that it's going to help you to prevent the things that we know will cause heart attack, like diabetes, obesity, losing lean muscle mass, you know, like all of those things that we know will cause heart disease and can help you to reverse or improve all those things. So uh, I think that the risk definitely outweighs or the benefit definitely outweighs the risk there. Yeah. Do you have a preferred way of administration, uh, administrating testosterone? I, I think you can do uh, the, the two ways that I recommend it would be injection or um, through a cream. And the reason why I talk to people about both is that a, some people are just scared of needles and won't do it. Um, but B, there is potentially some benefit of using cream over injection, especially for men that travel um, uh, or men that want a higher level of what's called DHT, which is a, uh, the, the more active form of testosterone. Um, because when it's absorbed through the skin, depending on where you put it, you can get increased levels of that. Yeah. So there's kind of a balance of both. But I do find that that men get better levels uh, that are consistent with injection. So I tend to steer people towards sub-Q injection twice a week. Have you ever considered, because like when you use cream and a lot of people use it on the scrotum as you because the absorption there is much better, you get much more 5-alpha reductase, much more DHT. Um, but when they applied in the morning, let's say the duration that the testosterone is elevated, it's about 16 hours. So it's back to normal. And so you feel great in the morning, hypogonadal in the evening. Have you ever considered using two doses like AM, PM? You know, I, I haven't because I don't get people. I don't feel like they're symptomatic with that. Um, but it is. Yeah, it's an interesting concept that you could do that and just make sure that you're getting the right amount, the right dose, you know, and you're just dividing it. So, yeah, I think you could. I haven't played with that. No, have you? I no, I, I haven't used testosterone myself. <laughs> um, so you mentioned DHT and a lot of people might be afraid of DHT specifically, let's say because it's, uh, you know, hair loss and for state cancer, those are the two main concerns. Um, but I do not fear, I mean, DHT, because if you look at the serum levels of DHT does not correlate with hair loss. And as you mentioned, like androgens, it does not promote um, the progression of prostate cancer and even injecting high levels of testosterone right into the prostate in uh, people with a really severe cancer can actually cure their prostate cancer. So is this really not a good lot of evidence to suggest that yeah. the androgens can promote hair loss like in the body, maybe in like very high concentration scalp specifically, but what's your opinion on DHT? Yeah, I mean, I think you actually did a great job of explaining it where we, we don't really know. I mean, if you take a step back and look at the big picture, which is, you know, DHT is the more active form of testosterone, right? And so it is a more powerful hormone, um, but it has those potential risks. But I think that, you know, we're all going to have different uh, responses to exogenous testosterone one way or the other. And so um, I, I, I'm also not necessarily afraid of it. Um, because I agree that the literature doesn't really support that it's necessarily bad. 
Um, but I do see people that have different responses, you know, so, so people that have higher levels of DHT and they do start seeing hair loss or maybe they think they start seeing hair loss, you know, so it's, it's really hard to know. Um, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily afraid of it and I kind of let it just naturally do what it's going to do. I do measure it though. Um, but I've never actually tried to do anything about it, but I do like to know where it is. How do you feel about the testosterone to estrogen ratio? Yeah, I think this is an important one. So, so part of my background and, and one of the reasons why I made this leap out of orthopedics is that um, I wanted to be able to, to help another group of patients. And that group is in the bone health group. So typically these are not men that are looking for testosterone, although they certainly could be, but typically these are women. And, and when I really dig into the literature behind estrogen and bone health and heart health, um, it's true for both men and women. And so we need a certain amount of estrogen in men. And I do find that this is really common in men that come in um, that are already on testosterone, that they're over suppressed and their estrogen levels are, are bottomed out. So I look for uh, a certain range uh, of estrogen to make sure that they are still getting that bone protection, um, that they're not going down this path, which is going to lead them, you know, oddly to osteoporosis from being on testosterone seems counterintuitive. Um, and they're also getting that heart health protection. So, so I do, I don't want to over suppress estrogen, although I will suppress it to get to that range. What's your preferred range for estrogen? Estradiol specifically. 20 to 40. 20 to 40. Okay. Because for estradiol. Yeah. 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 So the reason I ask is because there is a study where they look at, but this is again, just a correlation between, and they found that estradiol is an independent uh, risk factor for erectile dysfunction. And the range was basically the, the group that had low risk for ED had about 20 and the group that high risk had about 30. And then I've even seen that when you use aromatase inhibitors, which I'm not a fan of, especially like the pharmaceutical kind that has side effects, I, uh, it doesn't crush estrogen. So it can basically take estrogen, for example, from 30 to 15, and that hasn't really been shown to cause any bone specific negative effects. So, but my question is always that, um, like estrogen of 30 is not really that high. So when you use an AI, right. testosterone goes up, estrogen goes down and your ED improves. So is that because your estrogen went down or because your testosterone went up? So that's kind of right. why I'm asking this about the estrogen to testosterone ratio. Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting question. I haven't seen that study, so I can't speak to, you know, what, how they did that study or how they found those numbers. But um, I mean, if you think about, you know, if, if in that study, was that an average Were some people higher, um, you know, what, what was the testosterone in those, in those men and what was the ratio there? There's, there's probably a lot of nuance to that. Um, and I also think that the, the likelihood of there actually being a study to answer the question, it'll probably never happen, right? That's one of those studies that, that if you wanted to know, you know, what's the right level of estrogen in men to help with erectile function in the face of testosterone replacement, there's just not enough interest. Um, I mean, certainly we're interested as patients, but there's not enough interest from a ph pharmaceutical company to ever get that study done. You know? yeah. and, and unfortunately, most of the testosterone, you know, is coming from compounding pharmacies and, and there's no power to get studies done like that. So I don't know that we could ever answer that question, but it's an interesting clinical trick then to say, well, let's let's suppress your estrogen a little bit more um, and see if it can help if your symptoms of erectile dysfunction aren't resolved. Yeah. yeah. Like so you said like your ideal range is between 20 and 40. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Have you seen negative effects with higher levels of est estrogen? Yeah, it's all it's all coming from the osteoporosis literature, um, and so we know in in women, if you if they if they well if they dip below twenty for sure, you know this is postmenopausal women, then they start losing bone very rapidly. Um, same thing, you know, the, there seems to be a limited benefit of estradiol over the level of forty from a heart health perspective and from a bone health perspective. So there's no reason to go over that, 
And under that range is also where women will get uh, resolution of their you know, perimenopausal or, or menopausal symptoms. You know, so that whole concept of, you know, give as much as you need, but not too much from an estrogen perspective, that, that's, that's where that comes from. So for men, you know, I find that the, the, the normal range, if you have healthy testosterone levels, is going to kind of fit in that same bucket. So again, there's no, there are no studies on that, uh, but I do think it's a reasonable target. Right. So again, the reason why I ask is because, um, you know, estrogen can contribute to elevated levels of prolactin, estrogen can contribute to dyno and vascular dysfunction access. Estrogen can actually cause vascular permeability, cause vascular, um, veins, spider veins, those kind of stuff. So I don't know, because some people are like, you know what, if you take TRT, your estrogen can go up as high as it like, like. 60 80 it doesn't matter right. which to right. me is like that that's quite a concern you, you're asking for side effects especially when it comes to like uh, you know gyno development and main so you've never really dealt with those high levels and seen side effects or have you oh no we've seen it and i and i do suppress them yeah i will use an aromatase inhibitor to suppress them okay so let, let's switch over to doing it naturally what is your go-to do you have a go-to like um this is your symptoms let's just start with this list of 10 things yeah specifically for testosterone management yeah 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 i mean the the number one thing i look at is sleep you know and it just it sounds so stupid simple but it's just so it it's it's so proliferative you know that if you don't you know coming out of my traditional medical practice we don't have time to talk about sleep you know so i never really ask these questions Starting in this practice, you know, I spend 45 minutes, my initial visit with a patient is 45 minutes and we talk all about lifestyle, right? So I'll talk about sleep for 45 minutes. Um, and it, people tend to just have terrible sleep, you know, for a lot of different reasons. And if you can clean up their sleep, get the, an adequate duration, get them good sleep quality, um, you know, clean up their sleep hygiene, th that alone will significantly improve their testosterone. So that's, that's number one. Um, the second thing is going to be probably nutrition on either end. So either you're eating too much, you have a crappy diet, um, and you're eating terrible quality food, or you're constantly trying to lose weight, you're calorie restricted and, or you're, you're time restricted feeding or intermittent fasting all the time. And you're just, you're not getting enough energy. Both of those will cause you to have low testosterone. Um, and so you have to kind of bring them together in the middle. Um, and then lastly, well, not lastly, thirdly, uh, uh, exercise. I find so many people really focus on this idea of, you know, I just want to get on the Peloton or I want to hit the treadmill or go for a jog. And just all they do is cardio and they really don't, they, they totally miss out on the benefit of resistance training. So they're losing lean muscle mass and they're wondering like, gosh, you know, why do I look so flabby and why is my testosterone going down? It's because you don't have any lean muscle mass. And there's a whole cascade of metabolic events that occur when you don't have enough lean muscle mass. Um, and then lastly is the stress side. So we all have stress. We're all stressed for different reasons. Um, if you don't have good strategies to mitigate that stress, you'll also see a drop in your testosterone. So you have to address like each of those pillars. Um, that's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I'd love to address sleep, but I first want to ask you, there was a recent meta-analysis looking at sedentary people and their testosterone, and then they started a weight training session or about uh, a weight training routine, and then rechecked their testosterone, and they didn't find that there was a change. So interestingly, it seems that weight training doesn't increase their testosterone, whereas cardio, more specifically walking, the more steps you take per day, the higher testosterone seems to go. But this could correlate with stress management, getting more sunlight, those kind of stuff. So have yeah. you seen that when people actually start weightlifting that their testosterone improves, maybe because it's like they're losing fat or something like that? Yeah, I think it, it's a it's the long game. 
right? Because it takes, I don't know how long the study was, but it's really hard to design a study that's going to last long enough. Because if you, if you consider how, how slowly you gain lean muscle mass, that study is going to have to be probably years, right? Yeah. And, and nobody's going to study a lifestyle, nobody's going to fund a lifestyle study that lasts for years. Um, and in the short term, if you take people that are sedentary and they get out and they're walking for all those things that you just said, right? Stress, especially if they're doing it with other people, you know, it's like stress, companionship, uh, you know, all that like cultural, social stuff, they're going to see an immediate benefit. Whereas people that are resistance training, it's probably going to take longer. Um, but I, I tell people you need both, but if you have X amount of time, I want you to spend 80% of that X doing resistance training especially as we age, because you're going to lose lean muscle mass just faster and faster and faster as you get older. Yeah. Why do you, I agree with that. How do you, or what's a specific routine that you recommend? Because I can imagine some people's like, I have no idea what I'm doing at the gym. What do you usually recommend? Yeah, it's really tough because everybody has a different starting point. Um, and so I recommend working with a trainer, you know, we have a, it's a telehealth company. And so we, we don't have, you know, local trainers. I've got a, a guy that's uh, an affiliate coach with us. Um, and so I do, I recommend uh, people work with him if they have absolutely no idea or a local trainer. Um, it's pretty simple. Um, there are obviously a lot of online things as well. If people are comfortable, like just looking at a, a YouTube video and figuring out what exercises are. But a lot of my, my population tends to be a little bit older and they really need somebody to look at them and to, you know, inspect their form and say, hey, you know, you're putting yourself at risk. So I say you, know, you really need to work with a trainer to kind of figure out some of this form. And it doesn't necessarily mean like every time, but at least to get a, a, a core number of exercises that you feel comfortable doing on a regular basis. Do you make any kind of suggestions because some trainers, what they want to keep their uh, patients, so to speak, their clients safe. So they would put them on machines. Let's just do tricep pushdowns and some lateral raises, and we're going to skip on the squats and those kind of stuff. Whereas the, the, the exercises that recruit the most muscle mass would have the most benefit. Like do you give any Absolutely. kind of recommendations like that. Yeah, I mean, we we talk about it a little bit, I, I, depending on their starting point. You know, mach machines is a great a great goal if their starting point is zero. Um, you know, but but if they can progress into those you know those more complex movements, then absolutely. And uh, the guy that I, I work with, his name's Nick Truby. Um, you know, again, he's one of those guys that he'll kind of sneak them in. You know, we're like we'll start here, and then we'll kind of get into this, and then all of a sudden, people are like, "Like I'm off balance, I'm doing this thing," and like, and and they're yeah, they're doing it all. So yeah, we we talk about it and clearly try to get there. Um, and a lot of through through the practice, you know, when people are doing optimization programs, again, this is kind of like these indirect things that I'm sort of I'm, I'm promoting, but not directly speaking to. Well, how would you might motivate someone that seems to be exercise resistant? They don't really want to do it. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I don't see that a lot in my practice because, you know, we're, we're a cash pay practice and people are they're coming in because they're motivated. Right. Oh, so they're motivated to uh, they're, they're paying money to be there. They're motivated to make a change and something has happened in their life to, to do that. So I, I don't see it. Um, I, I will say that, you know, that's one of the reasons why I got out of tr the traditional healthcare system, though, is that you can't motivate somebody who's, who doesn't want to do it. You know, they don't understand the gains. They don't understand the benefit. They're just not going to do it until they get to that point where they're desperate and then they'll yeah. make a change. So you said sleep is your number one. How big of a difference have you seen someone's testosterone move just from modifying their sleep? Yeah. I mean, hard to say, cause I've never, I've never only focused on one lifestyle change. Um, but I'll, I'll just, I'll give you my own story. So, uh, gosh, it was about three years ago. Um, when I started really checking my own numbers pretty consistently, 
and I kind of watched my testosterone go, you know, like 600, 500, 400, you know, and I, I forget what it was. It was like 340 or something. And I was like, oh, <laughs> ah, like I have to do something. Um, and uh, and, I, and then I just took a deep look at my own lifestyle. And I was like, oh, actually, my lifestyle sucks. You know, I was sleeping five hours a night. I was trying to I was trying to do, you know, this additional training and start a new practice while still practicing as an orthopedic surgeon, but yet still being here for my family. I mean, it was just too much. Um, so I was really cutting, limiting my sleep, uh, not taking my own advice. Um, and uh, once I cleaned that up, I, I went from in the 300s to over 900 uh, with that and just a couple of different supplements. Um, and it, yeah, it was pretty powerful. So what are your main recommendations for sleep, except like, you know, keep the room dark, have some white noise, those kind of uh, casual stuff? Uh, if you can hear me, I think we froze. Yeah, I, you just froze up for a second there, but I can hear you now. Can you hear me? I can hear. Um, did you get my question there about the sleep? I, uh, I think there. Yeah, the, I got the general sense of it. So the recommendations about about sleep. Yeah, I, I think um, it's kind of a long conversation, really. But I will say that. You know, I start with the behaviors after dinner. You know, what happens after dinner uh, to the time you actually get in bed? Um, you know, so looking at. You know, are you watching TV? Are you getting stimulated by blue light? Uh, are you working during that time? Are you watching something that's going to stimulate you? Or, or you have a, a nice wind down routine where you are, um, you know, you're putting your thoughts on paper uh, in a journaling perspective. You're keeping the lights dim. Um, you are cooling down your room. You are wearing, you know, red glasses to block the blue light. Um, and then once you get in bed at a consistent time on a nightly basis, um, then you, know, you get in bed, your bedroom environment is perfect. It's dark, it's cold. Um, you only use it for sleep and sex. And, um, and, uh, you, again, you're kind of as cool as you can be. Um, I like sound machines. I like a little white noise, background noise. I have young kids though. So, you know, that's my, it's my culture and environment. Um, so I like white noise for that. Um, and then, you know, hitting that, that perfect window. So for me, you know, I'm about eight hours. I probably, I really don't sleep more than eight hours. And so if I can get a good, like 10 PM to 6 AM is, is my window. Um, if I set my alarm for six and I went to bed before 10, um, then I'm probably kind of, I'm waking up on my own, kind of like five forty-five, five fifty ish. Um, and, uh, but you have to figure out what that is for you. So for some people that's that eight hours, some nine hours, some more, and you got to know what that is and you got to be able to hit it. Um, and then, um, yeah, once you wake up, then you should be, you know, out of bed, no snooze, you know, go get some UV exposure by early morning sun, um, you know, reset your circadian rhythm and go. Oh, do you have any particular unwinding strategies? You mentioned journaling is one of them. Before mm -hmm. bed. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the biggest one is just like, don't get wrapped up in work. I think that's the hardest thing for most people is that, you know, for, for those of us that have kids, you know, you get the kids down and then you look at, you have this, like, I have an hour and a half, right? Like I'm going to crush my email or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to like dig into this project that, that I, I didn't get to today. Um, it's like the worst thing you can do because it just, it just hijacks your mind. And then you're going to have these sort of mid evening or, or midnight, uh, awakenings and your, your mind's going to be rolling. And so I would say that's number one is just like, try not to do that extra hour, hour and a half of work, really focus your work during the workday. That's why it's called the workday. 
Um, but do some kind of activity that is going to benefit you in some way. So like for me, like for, for me and my wife, that's our time, right? That's our hour, hour and a half together. That's where we connect, we talk, um, try, like we watch TV sometimes, but not often. Um, and so that's really, that's really our time to connect. Um, and then uh, I do like the idea of journaling. I'm not consistent at it myself, but for, for patients that have, um, that really struggle waking up with ruminating thoughts, I find that getting it down on paper before bed, even just like literally two minutes, right? Like just a couple sentences is all you need. Get it down on paper and then have that journal by the bed. And then for, there's something about that connection that just you like, you know, it's there, right? So you don't have to think about it. So I, I do, I find that's really powerful. Um, and just a quick comment about TV too. This is one of the most addictive things in our society. You know, we have so many addictive things. We could have a whole show on that. Um, but really limiting it to like, definitely not every day, probably not every other day, you know, like enough, like rare enough that you can get out of the cycle of like, Oh, what am I going to do tonight? Oh, I'm going to sit down and watch TV. Like you got to get out of that. Like just that, that automatic mode. You said your wife, you and your wife spend time together uh, before bed. So this make me curious because I think you two have the same interest. So what like topics do you talk about? <laughs> Is it more so like what happened at work? What's the interesting study I read? Like how does yeah. that, that look like? Yeah, no, we 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 are totally guilty of talking about work all the time, but you know, but we're both entrepreneurs and we both love building things and we both love our connection with our patients and clients. Um, and so, I mean, for us, that actually is relaxing in some ways. You know, it's it's not like we're like we're figuring out how to solve the biggest problem in the in, you know, but but we will we'll, we'll talk about patient stories and successes and challenges and. Um, you know, we try to talk about other things as well, you know, what, what's going on with the kids and, you know, where do we want to go on vacation next year? You know, all these, all this, that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, we, we certainly are guilty of, uh, spending time talking about work together. But again, for us, that's actually it, it kind of a way to wind down and catch up. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. It, it helps to relieve that stress that's been on your mind that whole day, like just get it out. It's nice. Have you ever experimented with some kind of physical activity, even a bit short, like before bed to unwind you? Yeah, I mean, we go on a walk. Um, so we have dogs and we walk the dogs behind our house. Um, and so that's, it's actually up a pretty steep hill. So it's a, probably a little bit harder than it should be. Um, you know, other than that, I try to stay pretty sedentary because I'm just like, just competitive by nature. If I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it aggressively. And so I, I don't, I don't want her to rile myself up like that. Um, you know, some people do find benefit in some gentle exercise. Uh, for me, it's just, it's the tendency is to go too hard. Yeah. So I need, I need to wind down. Yeah. yeah. So what are your favorite supplements for sleep? Gosh, um, I have a couple of different companies that I like, um, in, in variable different ingredients. Um, I think the biggest things to talk about is, is probably melatonin is, you know, that's the, the one that everybody thinks of. Um, different opinions. Um, I'm a fan of using it in small doses, but not necessarily big doses, um, unless you really, really need it. Um, the company that I've been using, um, uh, and I have no relationship with them, but the company that I've been using on a regular basis now is called Proper Sleep. You ever heard of those guys? I've not. Uh, yeah. So um, I think their websites get proper, but uh, I really like them because they have. Um, they have a, a, a nice complete line that has the the you know the, the herbals that I think are really effective. They have uh, those same combinations with melatonin, but it's not a huge amount. And then they have those same things with melatonin, with or without CBD. 
And so you kind of like, you kind of go down the line of like different things that might help people for different reasons. Uh, and again, we get genetics in our practice. So I know like, you know, some people are going to have a better response to CBD. Some people are going to have a better response to melatonin. Um, a lot of times we'll get hormone metabolite testing. So I know people that are low on melatonin or not. So it's kind of easier to dial it in with a, a supplement like that. Um, um, but then I honestly, I try not to use them whenever we can. Because always try to. Yeah, I find that, that um, you know, and I'm guilty of this too. Like, I, I, I'm not like addicted to it. I don't have cravings if I stop it, but I don't sleep as well if I stop it, you know? And I always wonder like, gosh, you know, if I had tried to do this through better behavior early on, would I have this, you know, this need or desire to take this supplement on a regular basis? So I always try to do it without, um, but I do find that they are really effective. Yeah, same here. Is there a specific like individual supplement that you like or do you always prefer to go for a combination supplement you know i i like combos because um they just they work synergistically you know if you think about the the whole concept of adaptogens is you know adaptogens work synergistically with your body with the surrounding and then also with each other and so these you know these ayurvedic or traditional chinese things like they they've been used for thousands of years for a reason um, and we're just we're just now putting them together in western culture so you mentioned the one was proper sleep or get proper. And do you, can you think of maybe two more? Um, gosh, off the top of my head. Um, no, <laughs> no, I, I have this, like, I have this, this spreadsheet, um, that I use. And, uh, when I, when we do a, a report for people, we have you know everything listed out. So I'm just a more of a, a box checker at this point. And then when I find something new, I'll, I'll substitute or swap out. All right. You, you can always, if you want, send me the links, like, like two or three links and I can always put it in the description for the people to to get the hang of uh, to buy those products if they need it sure yeah absolutely awesome so when it comes to natural supplements for testosterone um, do you ever use for example ashwagandha or friscolin or something to increase testosterone or do you like testosterone boosters again yeah I guess that, you know there are so many different ways to do it um, and I, I find that different people respond in different ways you know, so like, for example, um, you know, ashwagandha, for some people, they just find it to be so powerful. But for others, um, you know, they're like, oh, you know, it made me tired, you know. But again, like, it's these adaptogens that are, that can have an effect depending on what you need, you know, so that's kind of tough. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are, if you think about like the different classes, right, like you can boost it, you can have natural aromatase inhibitors. Um, so, I mean, I could put people on a stack of like 10 different things just for testosterone. Um, but if they need 10 different things for testosterone, they should probably be on testosterone. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Like when you ever uh, do someone's blood work and you can see that I have high estrogen and high prolactin, for example, I would assume that you are going to make something more specific to them to modulate their specific hormones and neurotransmitters to increase their testosterone. Right. So it's not like this is your, your five herbs that you're going to take. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, we try to be, we, we try to be as customized as we, as we can. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, everything's customized and nobody's on the same stack for sure. Yeah. But the, the challenge is, is especially with the adaptogens and the herbals is like, which, which literature do you believe? Is there any literature at all? You know, and, um, and, and there is, you know, and, and, uh, and we have different pathways for different people, but that's always the challenge. You said you used herbs for increasing your testosterone supplements and herbs. Which specific mm -hmm. supplements did you use for your testosterone? Yeah. So, uh, you know, if I go back to that three years ago, um, I, one of the first things I started on um, was probably um, Uricoma or Longjack. 
you're familiar with that one. Nice. Uh, uh, Tonga Ali was another one. Um, Tribulus is something that I was on for a while. Um, I think I added zinc at that point um, as a natural aromatase inhibitor as well. Um, you know, some others like uh, uh, fenugreek is something that I've, I've played with. Um, grapeseed extract a little bit. Um, some of the ones that kind of fall into like the osteoporosis category, um, uh, coleus uh, forscoli or forscolin is one. Um, so another one. Um, I can't think of off the top of my head though. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just, there's so many. Uh, but I think um, Long Jack was probably the first one I tried. Right. Um, for everyone listening, um, I can just imagine people's going to go screaming in the comments like, hey, tribulus arrestus doesn't increase testosterone. Well, yeah, it's not very effective at increasing testosterone, but it can quite effectively increase the 5-alpha reduced steroids, which is going to be more potent for improving, you know, your sexual function, those kind of stuff. So uh, that made me think of like a topical DHEA. That's actually very effective for increasing DHT, but it doesn't increase your testosterone. Have you ever messed around with uh, pro-hormones, uh, pregnenolone, progesterone, or DHA, or do you in your practice as well? So, um, yeah, so DHEA is something that we measure, um, and I will treat DHEA, uh, regardless of whether or not we're treating testosterone, mostly because of other potential benefits. Um, but yeah, I, so DHEA for sure. Um, the rest of the pro hormones, I don't generally, um, I don't at all, actually I've, I've colleagues that do, um, mixed results. Yeah. Right. So, um, you mentioned peptides. I don't know if peptides actually fit into increasing testosterone. Have you ever found effective peptides for increasing testosterone? Yeah, uh, not directly. Um, so, you know, I, I, going through things like the, uh, the growth hormone secretagogues, um, you know, looking at lean muscle mass, um, you know, they're going to help you to, you know, potentially work out more, improve body composition. So secondarily, um, you know, for people that are looking for that bump in testosterone, I think you could see that but I don't use them directly to increase testosterone. Right. So let's talk about the hard cases because I can assume there are people that's coming to you and they're doing the lifestyle, they're doing the diet. Something is not working. They have some symptoms. It's not resolving. Do you then go into more specific tests like near and hell analysis, ion panels, stool tests, those kind of stuff? Yeah. I mean, we take a pretty broad approach from the get go. So our, our basic panel includes a lot of different, I mean, pretty extensive blood panel, like I said, um, but we also do functional tests out of the gate. So I look at everybody's adrenal axis. Uh, you know, what does their cortisol look like? Um, generally, we'll do a, a screen for um, uh, for gut permeability out of the gate. Um, so that just kind of gives us a sense if they have a, a highly permeable gut, then you know we need to fix that first, right? Because nothing nothing that we do is going to help. Um, and then. Um, you know, for people that were on a pathway, we're kind of just hitting roadblocks. That's when we start thinking of, okay, do we need to do further gut testing, like a like a stool test? You know, do you have, you know, microbiome imbalance? Do you have a parasite on board? Do you have, you know, a toxin load that we need to do something about and go through a detox? So, so yeah, we definitely look at all those things. Um, thyroid's mixed in there as well, um, but kind of taking that functional approach of gut first, adrenals next, uh, then thyroid, then sex hormones. Um, so we're kind of starting at the bottom and working our way up. I love looking into the gut, but it's such a, what do you call this? It's such a mess because like we have all this bacteria, you don't know what's going, what, you know, so right. confusing. Um, but what specific tests do you go for when you do like a gut test? What's your favorites? 
Yeah. So, um, like I said, out of the gate, we do a permeability test. And the easiest way I've found to do that is with uh, a company called Vibrant America. And so they have these, they're, they're named funny, but these zoomer tests. And so um, the one I use is a wheat zoomer. The reason why I do that is that a lot of people, they'll be gluten free, but they're, they're still consuming um, wheat containing products or similar products. Um, and so what I like about the weed zoomer is that a, it tests for gut permeability with all the things I care about. Um, but B it'll tell me if these are people that need to avoid, uh, most grains altogether. And so it just gives me a sense of, you know, where the, what's the big picture from their, uh, from their diet plan that we can work on out of the gate, um, based off of that, you know, then we're going to get more extensive in the testing. So then you start talking about, you know, do we need to do a food sensitivity testing? Do we need to do a stool test? Um, you know, what pathway do we need to go down for the gut? And you're right. It is complex and confusing um, and can give you mixed results. But it, once you start getting the information on function, um, start getting the information on permeability, um, you know, things that you need to potentially get out of the gut, uh, these people get better pretty quickly, respectively. <laughs> yeah. So, so what is your go-to for, because it's so many different things that can be going on. For example, you might have impaired digestion. That can be a problem. You might have slow trans uh, slow transit time. That might be another problem. You might have dysbiosis, SIBO, you have fungal overgrowth. Um, but let's say someone's just leaky gut. Let's just ignore all the rest. Leaky gut, what is your approach to, if you have a general approach to optimizing gut function? Yeah, if, if they have leaky gut, um, then again, I actually go back to the basics. So you go back to the, the fundamentals of lifestyle and you say, okay, you know, how's your sleep? How's your stress? Um, because we know that just if you have poor sleep, if you have a lot of stress, you're going to have leaky gut, you know, and it's, it's, it's crazy, but it just, it comes down to like, you have to fix those simple things. I then also will use, you know, a, a, a plan to help repair the leaky gut. Um, question is, is do we need to do further testing to understand what that is? And the answer is usually if it's severe. Um, so, but if we say, let's say we didn't do that, um, then I would just introduce, you know, some simple things like, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the functional medicine 5R approach, you know, where you, you remove things that need to be uh, removed and you re replace what needs to be replaced. Uh, you know, if you don't know all the information, then we really just look at, okay, let's remove the things that we know are probably bad for your gut. So you do some, some simple elimination um, and then you just add in some nutraceuticals to help repair the gut on the back end, a probiotic in the end to help rebalance and then prebiotics, you know, to help repopulate what you just did that's kind of like a blind approach um but i find for most people that's sometimes enough um or we have to go down to you know for the further functional pathway of you know doing a stool test you know which enzymes do you need to replace you know what does the actual microbiome look like can we use targeted uh probiotics and it just it gets it gets um it gets to be a lot for the patients so with a blind approach what is your favorite supplements to heal the gut um, you know, everybody's a little bit different, um, but I think, you know, some of the, the big things would be like uh, glutamine, obviously, is just like a, a no-brainer that is in basically every gut supplement. Um, and then when you start dealing with the powders, it's nice to get things um, that are going to have a lot of different approaches. So you get things like cat's claw, you get things like, um, um, gosh, like slippery elm and like marshmallow something, you know, whatever. There's so many different little things. Uh, that all have just like a little bit of evidence and they all kind of make people feel better. And I'll tell you, the biggest issue I have right now is availability and all these things. So every, you know, every company is dealing with shortages. And so right now it's sort of like, I have so many different places I can get stuff, but it's almost like what's available, you know? So like in, in the right, 
in the right scope, what's available for my patients. So right now I'm using a lot of different stuff, which is kind of cool because I'm being exposed to different stuff. Uh, but yeah, definitely it's like starting with a glutamine base because that's really the, the core of all of it. So in terms of dose, what would that be? Gosh, that's, you know, it depends on what you read, but anywhere between like five to, to 15 grams a day. So that's like <laughs> scoops, scoops yeah. worth of glutamine. Um, and that's, it can come in capsules, but that's a lot of capsules. Do you mess around with butyrate specifically, supplying the short-chain fat acids? I don't. I try to do it through diet. Um, and, uh, you know, I monitor that, if we, especially if we're repeat testing, um, stool testing, and make sure that we are getting the right, you know, you know short-chain fatty acids. Uh, but I, I've not gone to supplementing them directly, no. Okay. So have you ever helped someone with ED? I, I reckon you do. Like, you help people with testosterone. Do you specifically help people with erectile dysfunction, sexual dysfunction as well? You know, what's funny is I, I don't, and it, it's not because I'm not interested in it, although I don't, I don't have a lot of depth in the knowledge of it. Um, I just don't, for some reason, I don't either, I either I don't see it or my patients aren't telling me about it. One, one of the two. Um, so I, I, I don't end up talking a lot about it. No. So it's never like someone with PFS comes to you and like, I have sexual dysfunction and none of that. Okay. Mm -hmm. No, no. And I think some of that's probably my marketing too. It's just like, I don't, I don't, I just don't tend to see that population. All right. So when it comes to cortisol, what is your go-to supplement for, or is it also a little bit all over the place? Uh, it depends on where they are in the axis. So for people that have, um, that are in that like kind of early adrenal dysfunction where they're, you know, they have really high cortisol, totally different approach than for people that have, uh, you know, they're totally fatigued and they have almost no cortisol production. Right. So, so in the really high cortisol group, we're trying to help calm things down, but in the, in the, really low cortisol group. We're trying to actually push them up, you know, and encourage. And so um, some of the adaptogens can be used on, on both. Um, again, you talk about things like ashwagandha, um, but otherwise you really have to hit, you know, are you going to be pushing it forward or pulling it back? And um, I actually can't give you the names of, of the, the adaptogens. Um, again, I have my, like, I got my master list. I'm not being shy about it. I just don't know them off the top of my head. Um, but then the other question would be, um, you know, are you going to use like a glandular for people that are in that, that, you know, the more severe stage where they're really struggling to produce cortisol? I like that. I think it's effective for people in the morning to help give them a boost. All right. So what would you do for someone that has a flipped rhythm? So it's kind of like that low testosterone during the day, elevated at night. Is that where you basically do a glandular and like B5 licorice in the morning and then phosphatidyl serene in the evening or something like that? Yeah, I mean, phosphatidyl serine uh, in combination with others, I think, can be effective in the evening. Um, yeah, but then yeah, try to try to give them a little bit of boost in the morning. So you know, glandular, um, and again, I I can't remember what I actually use. Uh, not being cagey. Yeah, it's right, not but... it's not the secret sauce. I just don't know it off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, you're actually not want to give the information away. I, I understand. Now I'm just <laughs> messing around. All right, so for thyroid, let's switch over to thyroid. Sure. What are typical hypothyroid symptoms? Yeah. So, I mean, the people that I'm seeing, you know, you're going to be talking about you know, people that feel cold all the time. They're going to have dry skin. They're going to complain of either dry hair or hair falling out. Um, but a lot of times it's also kind of these same things that I mentioned crossover with testosterone and men. It's going to be the, the fatigue. It's going to be the brain fog. Um, and so that's why you really have to look at, at all of it. Um, constipation is another one that's really common in there. Yeah. I actually wanted to ask you, like, uh, do you view low testosterone more as a symptom than anything else? Yes, to some extent. Um, so again, if you go to that, like the fundamentals of, of functional medicine, like 
sex hormones is like the fourth layer up or third, depending on how you look at it. So yeah, I mean, low T could certainly be a symptom of thyroid dysfunction, could be a symptom of adrenal dysfunction, could be a symptom of gut dysfunction. Um, so yeah, and that's why I generally, I try not to just treat it without looking at everything else. And, and if we are treating it, then we're using it as a tool to help fix something else, not necessarily just alone, um, which is where I think people get in trouble and they, you know, they, they go on testosterone. They're like, ah, oh, I'm not any better. And you're like, yeah, it's because that wasn't the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I've, I've heard that a lot. It's like, I'm using testosterone, but things are not improving. So, yeah. yeah. So you say you treat the symptoms when it comes to hypothyroidism and not numbers. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I get a pretty uh, full panel. So we get, you know, TSH and free T3 and free T4 and, and um, you know, total T3, total T4, reverse T3, um, the, the antibodies. And I see people that have dysfunctional numbers, but they don't have any symptoms of it. So then I, you know, we talk about lifestyle. We, we certainly re recheck, um, but I don't want to add it on if it doesn't seem to be an issue, um, depending on how dysfunctional it is. You know, in the functional space, you know, people are pretty quick to, to throw like a desiccated thyroid at, at minimally symptomatic people. But again, I find like if your thyroid's up here, but we're talking about, you know, they have adrenal dysfunction, like I'm only going to treat the thyroid if it's going to help treat the, the other problem. Um, so I, I'm definitely more interested in your symptoms rather than your numbers. Um, but I, I certainly look at both. What would you do for someone that has hyperthyroid labs, hyperthyroid, and then has mm -hmm. all the hypo symptoms? Yeah, I don't. Well, I guess that's not true. So I see people, I would only see that in the circumstance of which they're being overtreated. Um, and so what that tells me is that um, somebody's just, they're pulling really hard on the lever of thyroid, but they haven't addressed something else. So they have an issue either with the gut or they have an issue with their adrenal glands um, and they need to back off the thyroid treatment because we know, you know, you don't want to over suppress the thyroid function um, and over treat. We need to find a different way. So that's the only time that I see that. If I see somebody that has naturally occurring hyperthyroid, I'm probably not the right doc for them. Yeah. So your approach for someone that's hypo is to, again, just start with the diet and lifestyle and not address it directly. Is that your approach? It, it depends on how, how, how hypo they are. I'm, I'm certainly willing to, to treat. And again, usually starting with desiccated thyroid, depending on what their numbers look like. Um, but if they don't have symptoms, I don't necessarily treat. And so we, you know, we have to go look at the big picture. Yeah. Why do you like desiccated? Do you prefer desiccated over the isolated? I do just because it's in a, it's, you know, it's in a, a, a fixed ratio. And so I, I, I find that people do really well with it. It's simple. It's easy. It's inexpensive. Um, when you start getting, you know, into the synthetics, they don't, people don't necessarily tolerate them as well. Um, and I just find that in general, they don't need them, but of course some people do. What specific brands for the desiccated thyroid do you, is it like commercially available? Do you need a prescription? Uh, yeah. So I use NP thyroid, um, and that's commercially available. Okay. So, and you obviously tailored the dose based on what they need then specifically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Start, start low, go slow, see how they feel. All right. So I do rec that you address kind of like, um, you look at all the marks, T4, the T3, the reverse T3. What would you have someone do if they have normal T4, but low T3? Yeah, I would actually still, I would still start with desiccated, um, and see how they feel because the, the having an elevated T4 isn't necessarily a problem. And I find that when we do that, sometimes we're actually just encouraging the conversion of T4 to T3. So, um, so I would still actually start with desiccated, even though you might, you might think that you're going to see a bump in T4 that's too high. 
they're not going to be symptomatic because that's not the active form. Um, so I don't have a problem with that. Do you feel that perhaps it's a nutritional deficiency or stress that's inhibiting the conversion? And you treat oh, that sure. instead? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you think like if it's stress, like traditionally you'd think that it would be going to reverse T3. Um, but I think there are a lot of reasons why you can in limit the conversion of T4 to T3 or the the cellular response to T3, like the, right, the receptor receptor resistance. Um, so yeah, it's it's um, there's a lot of different reasons why that could happen. But you know, we're, again, we're addressing all those things. You know, for people that have dysfunctional diet, insulin resistance. Um, you know, we're we're trying to look at all those things. What is the main reason why people get thyroid resistance? You know, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. Um, there's a number of reasons why several different scenarios in which I see it. Um, but, you know, mostly for me, I see it in, in people that have insulin resistance, they have metabolic dysfunction, and they've struggled with obesity. And that's the most people that I see that in. So I, I think in that group, you're, there has to be something in the chronically elevated insulin, uh, whether it's the inflammatory component that goes along with it or immunologic, I have no idea. So what would you do if you give someone the thyroid, the they get thyroid, then they don't improve? Um, I mean, the first thing would be, you know, look at the dose, you know, do the numbers look better? Um, if the numbers aren't adequate, you know, then obviously increase the dose. Um, if the, if it's not getting you where you need to be and they're still symptomatic, you could consider going to synthetics and, you know, trying the T3 route. Um, I found in general, once you start going down that pathway though, that you're probably chasing the wrong thing. Um, and so I would really look at, you know, is there something else that we could be treating? Um, I'm not opposed to it. I just, I feel like you're you're going to start pulling that lever too hard. All right. I, I want to dive a little bit deeper into that specifically because there are doctors that recommend like T3 only when the reverse T3 is really high, bring that down. Mm -hmm. But you say you're, you're possibly chasing the wrong thing there. Uh, could you elaborate on that? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, we all like as, as physicians, we get, we get stuck in, in our, our own little space, right? Like when I was a, an orthopedic surgeon, if you came to me, Really, with any problem, I was like, "Well, you need surgery," you know, like, "Duh, you're well, you're here," um, you know. And so, if the, the whole like, if if you have a nail, I have a hammer. Like, everything becomes a nail. And and so, like, if you're a, a thyroid expert and somebody comes into you, like, you're just going to keep hammering this thyroid thing until you get it dialed in. But then I see people that come to me and they're on these just insane doses of of thyroid replacement, and you know. Um, but their hormone, you know, they haven't even touched their hormones. You know, they haven't touched their sex hormones. They, you know, they're perimenopausal and they're like thyroids going crazy, but you know, nobody's talked to them about having adequate progesterone or testosterone. Um, even in the face of, you know, when their estro estrogen isn't quite low enough to replace, um, people haven't addressed lifestyle stuff. So I just, I find that like, in my experience, there's other stuff to look at, you know, um, there's so many so many different reasons why you could have that thyroid problem that if you just keep pulling that lever harder and harder and harder you're not going to get better um or maybe some people get better but then what are you missing like are you actually then still missing something else um so yeah that that's my challenge with it because it is such a hot button topic and there are people physicians especially that just get they get so zoned in on it you know that that's all they want to treat um so i just i think you got to take a, a bigger look how big do you feel that gut plays a role in thyroid dysfunction? Big, big. I mean, especially when you start talking, you know, antibodies, people that have Hashimoto's and, um, you know, you start dealing with autoimmune issues. But but even if not, um, 
you know, the, once the gut becomes permeable on a consistent basis and your immune system get, gets flared up, which is hard to measure, um, you're going to start seeing other, other organ systems fail over time. And the thyroid is one of the early ones. All right. So what uh, blood markers do you see improve the most when someone uses thyroid? Um, I mean, all, well, all the thyroid markers, clearly, um, you, you won't see, you won't see, you know, it, what you won't see is I think a dramatic improvements in a lot of other stuff though. And that's why I find that like thyroid is a pretty isolated space that has an effect on symptoms for sure. But I think you have to address a lot of the other systems, not symptoms, but systems in addition, you know, whether it be with actual hormone replacement or optimization, you know, or dealing with the gut, um, because fixing the thyroid is going to fix everything. How do you, um, do you look into depth into micronutrients, vitamins and minerals? Um, I do to some extent. So, I mean, I don't, I don't get really extensive panels on it because I think that it's, that's probably looking really deep into the weeds and maybe that's sort of like the next step for some people, but you know, for me, yeah, we do, you know, um, like RBC magnesium and we do, you know, B vitamins, serum levels and, you know, vitamin D and, you know, kind of some of the, I guess they're advanced markers, but for me, they're kind of basic markers. Uh, cause we want to know, um, based off of what we're seeing genetically, you know, where are you now? Um, because we know that genetics only tells us how you were built, whereas the blood labs are going to actually tell you where you are. I think when you start getting into the weeds, uh, when you start looking at organic acid testing and, and a lot of the micronutrient arrays, like, I don't know how reliable some of that information really is. And then what are you going to do with it? Um, you know, depending on where their starting point is with their diet, it's not going to help you from a big picture perspective. Um, and if you start trying to like replace every single thing, you know, they're going to end up with a, a boatload of supplementation that they're just going to not take. So, but yeah, we start with the kind of the basic, basic advanced ones, if you will. Um, and you can go from there. My thinking is that when the thyroid becomes dysfunctional, why is it dysfunctional? It doesn't just give up. For example, it needs these vitamins and minerals to operate effectively, even for the conversion, you need them. So that's why, okay, perhaps the thyroid's not working effectively because the diet is inadequate. That's not giving you enough nutrients, or perhaps there's too much inflammation or you have uh, diabetes or something that's inhibiting this whole process. That's where my mind goes. So when you think about diet and when you help people about with their diet, what's kind of like the general recommendations that you go with immediately? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, from the thyroid perspective, you know, you have to look at, again, the whole big picture, but, you know, very specific things, you know, like you can test things like selenium. We don't on a regular basis. We just tell people to add them in, um, you know, getting iodine from food sources, but I don't generally recommend replacing iodine because of the potential risk associated with it. Um, um taking um, micronutrients in general through the form of supplementation, we do. So most people that have thyroid dysfunction, we're gonna put them on a product that has, you know, selenium as well as other micronutrients in it to kind of cover all those things. But um, specific dietary recommendations, yeah, it's just making sure that you're getting as much as you can through the, the diet as possible. So obviously this, the high selenium containing foods, but, you know, focusing on just a whole foods diet with adequate protein intake is is really the basis of all of it. Do you give, um general recommendations, like at least eat a palm full of meat every single meal, or like, how do you go about those? Yeah, it's funny, actually, I just wrote this week on, um, on adequate protein, because um, I've been seeing this like crazy trend, I guess it's not crazy. I've been seeing this trend of people that are coming in to see me and, 
you know, doing that lifestyle intake and they're saying, you know, well, I, I'm reducing my protein intake or I, I'm cutting out meat because of this and this. And I just think that there's, there is a, an abundance of um, just headlines and books and everything that are encouraging people to eat less and less protein, um, either directly or indirectly. Right. Um, and so, so I've, I've, I just wrote, you know, this week on this. And, and so what I tell people is, yeah, like I, your goal for the day is, is a gram per pound of desired body weight, which is higher than any of the, like the RDA recommendations for sure. Um, but is really pretty consistent with what I see in, in my colleagues who are looking at true health optimization. Um, if you're going to eat a gram per pound of desired body weight, then yeah, I mean, you're talking a, a fair amount of preferably animal protein uh, at each meal, you know, 30 grams minimum, probably more. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, this, this much is a good amount. <laughs> yeah. Because like most people, as you mentioned, don't eat enough or for example, they go for Subway and like all of these foods are so rich in calories, which you shouldn't really be consuming. And it's got so little protein. So they're focusing on the wrong places. Do you have like, because I can imagine people don't really like food prepping. What, what recommendations do you have for people like to make sure they eat enough protein? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is you got to figure out where you are, you know, and so we will have either people use, you know, like the free app, like chronometer, um, or through our EMR, you know, they can just like, they can just write in what we, what they eat. And then our, our, um, RD will kind of go through and get a sense of it. So then number one is like, how much protein are you eating? And most people are shocked, you know, people that are eating what they consider to be a healthy diet. I hear this all the time. Like, how do you eat? Oh, you eat clean. Cool. What does that mean? Um, and uh, yeah, and they're, you know, they're consuming like 40 grams of protein and they weigh 200 pounds, you know, yeah. like, you know, you're like, you're not going to maintain your lean muscle mass, you know, and you're then if you're not eating protein, what are you eating? And we you know the answer is generally carbohydrates, you know, and so, uh, yeah, so number one, um, you know, what are you eating? Um, and then, uh, you know, moving forward from there, are they looking at time restrictive feeding? How many meals are they getting in the day? Um, and then how do you how do you actually get that into a meal? And that's that's the nuance. Uh, that's where I that's why I have a registered dietitian that we work with. You know, she has her master's in nutrition as well. And so, you know, I, I lean on her to help give people meal plans. You know, if they're not getting enough in their meals or if they just can't get enough in their meals, um, then we will start talking about doing a, you know, like a, a protein shake in between or something. But, um, yeah, finding the right way to get it in there is really important um, and understanding, you know, you know, like for me, like, and I need upwards of 200 grams of protein a day. So that's not an insignificant amount. And if I don't focus on it, I won't get it, yeah. you know? Yeah. It never made sense to me. Like when people say meat is bad, okay. So you want to tell me that all of these vitamins and minerals are fantastic, that it contains no plant toxins and it contains all of these beneficial peptides like carnitine and carnosine and anserin. But you want to tell me meat is bad, but it's kind of like the only place that it's found. Like that made no sense to me. So yeah, yeah, I'm glad but you. Could, I could talk about that forever. I could talk about it forever. Yeah. Do you have a like a special soft spot, something that you want to talk about, um, meat, for example? Yeah, I mean, I think, gosh, you know, what's what's the short version of it? Um, you know, I think that in general, um, we just need to identify, kind of like you just said, that that meat is a, a very dense source of nutrient. And it's something that we have been consuming consistently for for thousands and millions of years, you know, as as a species, and it has helped us to thrive. The idea that it's somehow and now it's unhealthy for us uh, just just doesn't make any sense. First of all, I mean, just the whole the whole idea just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, but then you start getting into the nuance to say, you know, well, what about the environment, and what about this, what about that? And I would say, like. 
try to find an objective perspective of the information. There are so many really, really strong opinions um, and passionate opinions about about this the idea that you know of, of animals and the environment. Um, so you know, encouraging people that have a strong opinion in the other direction. Cause I get, I mean, I'll have people that are vegan. They'll come in and talk to me and they're like, well, can I work with you? And I'm like, sure, but you know, we're going to talk about animals, you know, and, and I'm not going to tell you that you have to change, but I'm going to tell you, you know, why you should consider it. Um, when I give you this boatload of nutrients that you need, because you're not getting it through your diet, we're going to have a conversation about, well, you don't need three quarters of these. If you would just consume animal products, you know, people that are struggling to lose weight, people that are diabetic, I'm like, look, you know, there, there is an easier way, you know, and then you have to have the conversation about environment and about ethics and, and, um, and I'm happy to do that. Um, but I think that just the, again, it's like the big picture, like, like it doesn't make sense that we should exclude these things from our diet, from a health perspective, just doesn't make sense at all. Yeah. So let's talk about carbohydrates and thyroid function. Have you ever seen negative effects on thyroid when people go ketogenic or carnivore diets? Um, you know, I've, I've read about it. Um, I've not seen it. And, you know, my background in weight loss is really driven by my wife's company. Um, and she uses carbohydrate restriction, not, not necessarily nutritional ketosis, although I'm sure some people get there. Um, and we don't, we don't see it just consistently don't see it. So I I'm sure it exists, but my question is, you know, for, for what reason does it exist? And then is it existing in the, in the space of, you know, you're too restricted in carbohydrates, I'm sorry, too restricted in calories. Uh, so you're energy deficient um, or, you know, what else is going on? Uh, Cause it, it, it's such a complex picture and it's usually not just about the carbohydrate restriction. Um, for people though, that see a drop in numbers and they don't have any symptoms, also not really concerned about that. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So I think like these functional changes, um, I don't think they're necessarily bad because you don't necessarily need the same amount of energy to function in a state of ketosis as you do when you're burning jet fuel for carbohydrates. Yeah. There's always this argument that, you know, some people do great for like two to three years and they get the genetic diet of carnivore and then they suddenly just crash because like when you're in that low carb state, you know, your adrenal glands pick up, you have more cortisol, although, you know, at least not maybe long-term, some people tend to be more sensitive to this, but cortisol picks up a gluconeogenesis, but obviously when you're in a ketogenic state that has a glucose sparing effect. So cortisol tends to go down after three weeks back to normal because of the ketosis state. So, um, I know like in the comments, people will be like, you know, <laughs> low carb diets is horrendous. I've crashed on it. So that's why I can like ask you, what have you seen specifically? Yeah. Yeah. And again, I, I think there's just, there's more nuance than it to say, like, it's because of my carbohydrate restriction. Um, you know, cause I, I see so many people that are on, they're on a ketogenic diet, but they're, they're not, they're actually not in nutritional ketosis or they're, they're on like a really crappy, you know, like the dirty keto, like they're on just like a, they're on a crappy diet, like a highly processed food diet. Like there's a lot of reasons in there, like why you would have thyroid dysfunction because you're eating crap food, you know? And, and so the, I, I look at it from a case by case basis, but in my patients that are in, you know, significant uh, carbohydrate restriction, I, I don't see or haven't noticed, I guess, an actual uh, drop in thyroid function. Right. So what is your, your go-to carbohydrates uh, when someone wants to increase their testosterone and thyroid function? Do you have a favorite, for example, like eliminating starches or something, going for fruits and onion? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a grain hater by nature, um, you know, and just, uh, I just, 
I find that we overeat them in general. And I come from a background of just, I just overeat. Like I just, you know, I just have this tendency to overeat. My family's all, all very heavy. Um, and so we just, we use food for, you know, everything, um, including uh, too much consumption. And, um, and so uh, grains are, they're, they're dense. They're, they tend to be very inflammatory. People don't usually know if they're intolerant to gluten unless they're severely intolerant to it. So the, I tell people like, uh, if your goal is to lose weight or have reduced inflammation or live a long time, like you just, you should cut grains out in general. Um, people say, well, what about like this grain or that grain? And I would say, okay, well, the, you know, grains that you can have in small amounts, I hate using the word moderation, um, but in small amounts would be like rice in small amounts, I think is probably okay for people that are carbohydrate tolerant. Um, um, oats, if they're certified gluten-free, probably okay in small amounts, but probably not for breakfast, like everybody wants to eat them. Um, so I think that they're, they serve a role, but it's a, it's a really limited role. Um, so that's probably the, the biggest thing that I tell people to cut out. Um, and then obviously added sugar and processed foods, but that's a, I don't, I think everybody knows that. I hope. It's interesting that you mentioned that oats, you know, is, is best not consumed for breakfast because I had this experience when I was younger that when I was eating oats, I would get a crazy crash in blood sugar, like for specifically for breakfast. And it's supposed to be like a low GI. And then, but when I'm having like a fruit and honey, for example, I don't get that same crash. Like, why do you specifically recommend not having oats for breakfast? Yeah, I mean, I, I see it. I guess the biggest thing I see is that my patients that are coming in that are they're diabetic or pre-diabetic and they read the headlines and say, you know, oats are great for, you know, for blood glucose control. And I'm just like, ugh, like says whom? Quaker? You know, and, and you look at the studies and they're like, yes, oats compared to like a terror, like, you know, compared to like a McDonald's. I'm like, well, duh. You know, like what's the starting point? And so I've, I've actually done the CGM test, you know, where you uh, like, you know, you have your CGM. I'm sure your, your, yeah. your listeners know who that, what that is. So like continuous glucose monitor comparing oats to like ice cream for breakfast, you know, and like oats had a, a worse response than eating ice cream for breakfast, you know, and I do that and publish it so I can show my patients like, look, they are not that great. You know, um, and so I think I don't know what it is about it, but yeah, you get this really high spike and then you get a really precipitous drop. And so that's when you, you know, you get hungry and you have cravings and so forth. So there is something about oats, especially if you're not putting enough dietary fat in it, which if you're on a, a low fat diet, you're not, um, you know, you're adding fruit to it, which is more sugar. So, yeah, and I'm not surprised. I think that you would do better eating just fruit, which is all has all the natural, you know, the water and the fiber and everything in it. Uh, versus something that's been essentially, you know, pretty darn processed and is a very dense carbohydrate source. Yeah. Have you, and um, this might be a dead end, but have you ever experimented with topical thyroid? I haven't, no. Okay. Is this interesting because like topical thyroid specifically can help with wound healing or ha prevent hair loss and those kind of stuff help with the regeneration? Because I think there is something like you have a spot specific thyroid deficiency and then providing higher levels of thyroid to that area can help. There's just some studies on that. So yeah, yeah no, there's definitely not a lot of um, products out there that actually provide like a liquid or a topical kind of thyroid. So I've tried that before. It actually is very uh, strong anti-inflammatory in my experience. So if I tweak anything or if something hurts, applying a little bit of thyroid there seems to re relieve the inflammatory, like the, the aches and the pains relatively quickly, which is quite cool much better than uh, something like deep heat or um what's that other thing called trommel although trommel is also pretty cool um yeah, interesting so peptides 
Uh, yeah. You're a fan of peptides. Where do you use peptides the most? Which is your favorite peptides? Um, you know, I'm not, uh, I don't use anything specifically for thyroid and peptides. So for me, you know, peptides, gosh, I'm really kind of in the, you know, the musculoskeletal space, um, you know, mostly through the, the IGF-1 pathway with the, the growth hormone secretagogues. Um, and then, um, kind of the, the neuroinflammatory pathway and the auto and like immune pathways. Tell me more about the autoimmune and immune pathways in peptides. So autoimmune, you know, so, or immune. So, you know, um, gosh, the one that was pulled off the market, um, thymus and alpha, you know, recently pulled off the market for, uh, for being promoted as the, the cure to COVID, uh, which is really yes. unfortunate. Um, but you know, that was, I think I had so many patients that were, that were on it and they loved it. Um, and, um, so I'm sad to see that one go, but I'm, I'm interested. There's a, a, a new peptide, at least it's new for me. It's probably not new, uh, but new for me called thymulin. I don't know if you've heard of that one, but it's, uh, it's a, basically a fragment of, of thymus and alpha, um, which has some, I, I would call it early, but interesting research. Um, and then the other one that I've, I've been using for neuroinflammation is um, synapsin, or I also call it RG3. Um, and so that one, nasal spray that um, I have several patients on that just, they kind of talk about brain fog and they, they just, they feel inflamed, you know, they're like, I don't know, my brain's inflamed. Uh, and this does really seem to help. So I think that's kind of cool. That's cool. Um, let me think. <laughs> I so let's say someone with diabetes they tend to also have kidney problems do you have any peptides that's really helpful for regenerating the kidney or um okay let, let me dive in a little bit more specifically even lupus because people with lupus tend to have also degenerative kidney disease so in specifically with a with a background of lupus and then kidney what peptides do you think would be really helpful yeah, I mean, anytime I see autoimmune, I mean, the, the first thing I'm the first thing I'm thinking is, is gut more so than how do I treat with peptides? Um, you know, and my, my favorite peptide for the gut is, is BPC oral. Um, I have a number of patients with, uh, you know, with, with gut issues that we're healing that do really, really well um, on, uh, on BPC. Um, so I would, but I would look, I would look at the gut and, and try to get a sense of what's going on. Um, as far as Kidneys. Uh, I don't have anything specific for kidneys in um, uh, in the peptide form, but there is a, a supplement that I've I've just been turned on to recently, which has some interesting research behind it. Um, and I believe it's um, it comes from goldenrod. I think it's called Saladago. 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 Um, All right. Yeah. Check it out. I could look it up, but um, but yeah, I've, I have a few patients on it, um, and uh, they have seen some improvement in renal function. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. These people that have had this like chronic elevated creatinine um, and uh, yeah, their, their numbers have uh, normalized, which is kind of cool. So when you use BPC uh, 157 orally, what's the dose typically on a daily basis? Oh, gosh. Um, off the top of my head, I think it's 500 milligrams uh, twice a day, but I could, I could be wrong. I have to look at my notes. Okay. And the thymosin, when you inject it, what's the dose there? Uh, well, thymus and alpha, now the dose is zero because you can't get it. <laughs> and if you can get it, you probably shouldn't because it's not made by a reputable person. Fair enough. What was the dose? <laughs> mm. I don't know. I'd have to look it up. Okay. Dosing for peptides is tough um, because it's, yeah, you have to, you know, reconstitute and then put it in. Yeah. It's all like I have to, I have to think about it and then think about it again before I order it. All right. So in the synapsin, was that also a special kind of dose or just a recommended dose? 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of all over the place, but it's it, it, it comes in a, like a nasal spray. And so it's, you know, the the. Yeah, I'm going to have to look it up, but it's, you know, it could be a it's a pretty broad range. I'll put it that way. All right. So we talked a lot about testosterone and thyroid. Um, is there anything that you felt that it's worth mentioning that we might have skipped over or you want to elaborate a little bit more deeply on? Um, gosh, we did. We talked about a lot. Um, no, I mean, I think we kind of hit all the all the big picture things. Um, I mean, the things that I really want to talk about, uh, you've talked about with, you know, testosterone and uh, again, I think the importance of, of lifestyle as the, the primary thing, especially for young guys, you know, rather than trying to just, you know, cover up bad lifestyle with taking testosterone replacement because you, you might not need it, or at least you might not need it yet. Um, and, you know, kicking that can down the road with, with good function for at least a decade or more um, so that you're not replacing your testosterone for 50 years. Yeah, I think the thing is that a lot of people know what they need to change. They're just not changing it. So they're not taking a deep dive into their lifestyle. So it's, okay, I have low testosterone. What should I be doing? Okay, well, my sleep can be better. I can get more sunlight. I can be more active. So sure. according to you, it, it's more so the simple things that's going to make the biggest difference. Um, do you feel like lifestyle makes almost like a bigger difference than diet? Or do you feel like they're just, you can't separate them really? Yeah, I mean, I consider them to be part of the same thing, but, but um, it depends on how bad your diet is. You know, and how bad your yeah. sleep is, how much your stress is. Yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Doug, I really enjoyed this conversation. I really appreciate you coming on and discussing all of these things with me. Yeah, Hans. Thanks for having me. Been fun. My pleasure. All right, guys. And I will check you in the next one. Cheers.